Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So in this episode, you're stuck with just me. And it's the first Ask Me Anything episode of the Words Matter podcast. I hope to make this a regular feature. A while ago on social media, I invited everyone to send some questions or topics that they wanted me to talk more about. And I'm delighted that I got a really good response on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So I've created a bit of a library of questions, uh, which I'll use as a kind of rolling database from which to extract questions so that these AMAs can be kind of reasonably frequent, perhaps once a month. And I've tried to get a range of questions from different topics. So they are completely handpicked in a very non-objective way. I was unable to turn off the tap of cognition and to completely switch my biases off, but I was quite aware of not selecting questions which I feel entirely comfortable and confident to talk about. But nevertheless, many of the questions, as one would expect, are featured on topics that you're all interested in and I'm all interested in, and that's probably why we're all listening. But nevertheless, the questions that were submitted had common themes and and pretty much tracked many of the subjects on social media and the, and the podcast episodes that we've that we've released. So I'm just going to jump right in there. And so the first question I have is: What barriers have you encountered implementing the biopsychosocial model in osteopathic practice? Uh, so that's a, a good opener. Um, it depends on what you mean by barrier. In terms of clinicians just upfront objecting or rejecting to adopting a, a, a biosexual stance towards their clinical practice. You don't come across too many of those. I think what's a more common position is that, at least within osteopathy, and probably within other similar MSK-type professions, is that there's an assumption that the biosexual model is often already built into their approach to practice. So I think, at least within osteopathy, my, my impression is, or my experience is, that many clinicians are familiar with the biopsychosocial model. They kind of know that it, what it's about. They were often introduced to it in their undergraduate training. My, my view is that I think many osteopaths certainly don't, they don't reject the biopsychosocial model anyway, but they just assume that they're doing it and that it surrounds their clinical practice. But my experience is that, and it goes the same with many clinicians, and that there's you know some reasonable quality research that suggests this, that clinicians have a sense of what the biopsychosocial model is, but actually enacting it and using that model to shape their clinical interaction, their case history taking, their kind of physical interaction with patients, their management reasoning, that's often not the case. So despite clinicians knowing what the BPS model is about and having a kind of bit of a grasp about the ins and outs of that, it doesn't necessarily follow that 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 model or that approach informs their clinical approach with patients. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that to truly immerse yourself or embrace an, a biopsychological model or a, a model of practice which really places the patient's lived experience and values and preferences and meaning at the forefront of your clinical practice and the forefront of your reasoning, it means that it poses lots of challenges in terms of the role of the clinician. And often that role is one of doing or fixing or deciding for or providing information. 
And that can be a real challenge, you know, when at least in the manual therapies, a view is that the body holds the information. So the patient's body has that information in there somewhere, whether it's tightness, tension, some illusory uh, rhythm, and that the clinician can feel that, that has the skills, the knowledge to be able to access that and not just access it, but be able to determine if if it's at fault, if there's some dysfunction. And then it goes even further to say that the clinician has the power to actually influence or change some of those findings, if you like. And so the patient's narrative, their experience, their values, what they think about their body, their problem, their pain, the meaning that they construct about the sensations that they're experiencing, that tends to be forgotten. And so I think in answer to the question, I think one of the main barriers for clinicians such as osteopaths in adopting a biopsychological model is that it can be a real challenge to reposition oneself in that therapeutic relationship when the default has been, or at least the training has often been, one of practitioner-centered or, or kind of clinician dominance. Um, and I think there's there's issues around change that the biosuccession model and the evidence-based practice model have kind of emerged around the same time, give or take five or ten years. And so to adopt a biosuccession model, it requires you to also adopt and to be, be comfortable with a model of practice which is evidence-informed. And I think even still within osteopathy, there are still corners of the profession who explicitly or implicitly reject the evidence-based model often based on faulty ideas and misrepresentations about about what the EBM model is about. And certainly like any model has flaws and faults and can be made more sophisticated or or more usable or more person or patient centered. But as a a starting model to integrate clinical evidence, practitioner expertise and judgment with patient values and preferences, that's entirely sensible. So I think the, the minute one adopts a BPS model, you're kind of committed to adopting an evidence-based model because the evidence-based model would suggest, and it certainly hasn't closed the door on, on other kind of approaches, but it would seem to be that a, a biopsychosocial person-centered approach to practice would be a more ethical, more cost-effective, less harmful, and likely more effective way to, to manage patients with musculoskeletal pain. And so what comes with the rejection, when one rejects the evidence-based model, you tend to get a rejection of the biopsychosocial model as well. They are compatible positions to hold. Some other things which we, we know, that we know that clinicians' training and skills in following up the biopsychosocial model, so implementing it, skills in conversation, communication, asking open questions, motivational interviewing, um, assessing kind of risk factors for more persistent or chronic pain conditions, being able to develop relationships with patients which are productive and therapeutic and not paternalistic. That can be a challenge. So I think that's another barrier. And I think finally, there's probably clinicians which, and I've had this struggle, how to construct your appointment, what does a biopsychosocial manual therapy treatment look like? And I had this conversation with Jerry on podcast six, and he probably rightly said that if you're going to, you know, by starting, if you're going to begin a bit of a voyage into the biopsychosocial model, then initially don't change anything. I mean, you just still doing, worst case scenario, you're doing implausible manual therapy in a, in a very biomedical sense. You doing that same thing that you were doing but introducing biopsychosocial concepts into your clinical practice, such as really being interested in the patient's experience, their meaning, their values, their preferences, looking to understand what their pain means to them, what their disability means to them, looking at goals, 
and their kind of future self with them. Even you, you still doing the, the, the kind of manual therapy, but introducing these other avenues for your clinical practice. That's a, that's a really good start. So you haven't got to jettison the techniques that you're good at and skilled at or change your practice too drastically early on, but just introducing some of the biopsychosocial ideas and concepts and strategies. And then eventually you can begin to, to find a, a kind of model or theory of practice which which suits you. But I'm going to suggest that you listen to uh, Podcast 6. Jerry did a great job of describing his experience and gave some really good tips about how to kind of transit to a more biopsychosocial framework. Okay, so question two. How do you record your diagnosis? I still feel the need to be very tissue specific and not sure about how to include psychosocial factors. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so for me, in terms of, so if we use lower back pain as, a, as an easy example, in terms of the tissues, I really won't record specific tissues other than the low back. And maybe with some, if there's any neurological uh, symptoms or signs, I'll certainly indicate those and record those. And so they're really, you've got to ask yourself, you know, what's the, you know, it's very tempting to record particular muscles or ligaments or tissues which you think are involved. But given that the reliability and validity of the clinical tests and utility of these tests is all pretty low, and that even having a tissue specific diagnosis doesn't change outcome, and in some ways communicating that tissue specific diagnosis to patients can be unhelpful and kind of meaningless to them or meaningful in the sense that it creates unhelpful ideas and, and frameworks and behaviours. Um, there really isn't any utility in having a tissue diagnosis. It doesn't really help anyone because it's most likely untrue. And even if it were true, even if you had guessed the tissues to be the tissues that were generating this noception or, or the partly responsible pain experience. The interventions that we have just don't meet that level of specificity. So we've got a very blunt tool or blunt manual therapy tools rather to utilize. So I think not being specific when it comes to things like low back pain, but certainly being specific in terms of the factors and the psychosocial factors and behavioral factors and lifestyle factors which might be relevant to that particular patient's development or maintenance of back pain. And so I'll record something like non-specific low back pain, an absence or a presence of any other signs or symptoms suggesting a, a, a more ridiculous or neurological form of back pain. And then through my conversations, through my case history taking, and if I've used any screening tools, start back, etc., I will probably write down a short narrative summary about some of the things which are, appear salient to me and that I've talked about with the patient. And so, you know, as Ben Darlow said, a diagnosis is really just a construct. So I haven't really got any kind of nuggets or, or I don't think super helpful tips other than just write a summary and the salient points of the conversations that you've had with patients, which you think are involved or impacting their situation. And so it could be, for example, that, you know, I might write something like uh, some evidence of pain-related fear, the patient was quite apprehensive about bending or moving and was quite cautious about going from sitting to standing or, or showed some, some real anxiety around some of those movements. I probably wouldn't write it as long as that, but it's really much be a sentence or two for me to try and capture that point. Because the truth is you don't have time to write essays about patients and um, it just needs to be usable for you for when you come back to that patient. And of course, if another clinician sees that patient using your notes, it needs to make sense to them too. Um, but I think in terms of about that that sense of obligation that you need to record the tissues, 
I think you just got to ask yourself, every time you're recording a tissue, you're almost certainly wrong. And as I said, even if you were right, it almost has no impact into your into the patient's outcome. It might have an impact if you communicate that to a patient, particularly if they've got anxieties or or frameworks around their, their back pain, which aren't, aren't particularly helpful. So next question, what pushed you towards pursuing your PhD? And do you have any advice for someone looking to get into academia? Um, what pushed me? So I think, so I did my PhD after I did my master's degree and I really came off the back of that. I just had lots of, lots of questions. So I was always quite curious as a student. I was one of those undergraduate students that would just constantly ask questions in, in, in class and probably quite annoying. Um, and, and look to have just to get a, a real insight into, into the information that was, was being delivered in, in the lectures. I think for me, so my PhD looked at the clinical reasoning of osteopaths. And so I was a clinic tutor for a while and would supervise students um, as they were seeing patients in their final years. So both as a student and as a clinical tutor, I kind of observed that, and it's probably, again, similar in other professions, that there was, a, there was real variance across the profession, that you could have one osteopath that would rub your tummy, another osteopath would, would manipulate your back, another osteopath might hold your head, another osteopath might place a finger somewhere inside your body for back pain. It sounds quite crude, but there really was this, I just noticed this huge variation. And as a student, I'd ask one tutor something and get one answer. I'd ask another teacher something else, maybe about a diagnosis of a patient and get a completely different answer. So I really noticed quite early on that there was this huge variation in clinical practice and also not just in ter- a difference in terms of what osteopaths were doing, but just in terms of how they were thinking and how they were conceptualizing treatment and their profession and their role and the role of hands-on skills, all those kind of things. So I noticed that quite early on. And for me as a student, it was quite frustrating. I was kind of like, well, that's just so, how, how are you supposed to even navigate that as a student? And when I went to try and understand these differences in, in clinical styles, often it would be that types of osteopaths were, were categorized based on their techniques. So you'd either be a structural osteopath and structural osteopaths do kind of, you know, hardcore manual therapy to the spine and body and relocate bones and are really interested in the mechanics of, of manual therapy. Then you've got cranial osteopaths, which kind of deal with the head and flow of fluid and movement of bones. And then you have the visceral osteopaths, which do kind of techniques to the viscera. When I ask more senior clinicians, you know, or, or when I was a student, I asked my lecturers, you know, why is there this variation? And often the, the, would be, the answer would be, well, there's just, you've got cranial, visceral, structural osteopaths. And, and the differences were explained based on techniques. Anyway, fast forward a few years' time, and I was coming towards in my master's, and I was thinking, what can I, I think I want to do some more, more study, more, more, more learning. And I was really interested in manual therapy. I was particularly interested in manipulation. I was particularly interested in how high velocity thrusts you know, create hypoalgesia or kind of reductions in, in pressure pain thresholds. At the time, noughties, I guess it was, you know, things like Bielowski's work came out and there's a fair old bit of work in into manipulation and mobilization. So I was interested in that. And then I was going to look at uh, embarking a biomechanics PhD, looking at biomechanic effects of manipulation, particularly with respect to dose-dependent effects. And then one of my supervisors, which was Professor Anne Moore, who's, a, who's now an emeritus professor from Thai, but was a one of my wonderful uh, supervisor, together with Nikki Petty, she said, well, how do osteopaths decide on the, the dose? How do osteopaths know how much can a manual therapy to give someone? 
Because if you're going to conduct some experiments into dosage in terms of manipulation in the context of osteopathy, you need to kind of know how they're deciding what they're doing. And there really wasn't an answer. You go to the old books and you go to the textbooks in osteopathy. There is no, there's very little written about how to make decisions around manual therapy or the deliverance of uh, spinal manipulation. So then I took that as a evidence gap, a knowledge gap. I was, you know, the question now came back to when I was a student, well, yeah, how do osteopaths decide how to treat patients? And you remembering as a student, there was this huge variation in how osteopaths decide to treat patients. It led me to my my topic, which was clinical reasoning of osteopaths. So I was interested in how osteopaths make decisions, how they conceptualize clinical practice and, and their reasoning strategies. So that was the topic. That wasn't really the question that was asked, but that, that was the topic. Um, so it was just a curiosity and a collection, a combination of curiosity and stubbornness not to take kind of no or, or superficial answers um, as being sufficient and some really good supervisors and some people around me that would encourage me and, and kind of ask questions of me. And I was in a group in the University of Brighton that were doing some really interesting work in quality research and also some really good physiotherapists that were doing some research into manual therapy and manipulation. So I was in a really, really good environment to, to, to kind of take these ideas forward. In terms of um, advice about getting into academia, I think that, um, so for me, I started off quite soon in, in terms of clinical, being a clinical tutor. I, as soon as the, the, the year that I graduated, I went back and got into clinical tutoring. So got into academia quite, quite early and then just kind of went through various roles. So I think if you're looking to get into academia, I think you begin to take on tutoring or, or some kind of sessional lecturing. And then at the same time, learning from colleagues and more senior academics and whilst at the same time looking to take any opportunities that you can to get involved in research projects whether it's you know collecting data or helping with recruitment or just doing some admin for for the research project and that will expose you to some ideas and and possible research avenues and another tip is just to think about your career prospects or trajectory in academia just begin to think about when you're choosing your your PhD topic you know think about what kind of role what kind of speciality might this PhD topic take me to recognizing that the value of a PhD is often in the skills and methodologies that you develop expertise in not necessarily the not necessarily domain or the content specific topic so just thinking about the transferability of some of those skills to both to both academic roles but also outside in industry or, or other sectors. So next question, in your transition from being student to clinician, what has been your biggest challenge, difficulty, and how did you overcome it? Hmm, good question. So I think the biggest challenge for me was probably maybe five, six years after I graduated, when you're in this real kind of sticky point. If you're engaged in the debate and you're engaging with the literature and you recognise that many of the things that were promised to you as being concrete and hard and certain, such as, you know, the effectiveness of manual therapy, the reliability and the kind of usefulness of those manual skills that you spent a lot of time learning about and reading about and practicing and refining. When that dawns on you that actually these skills aren't as robust or as valid as they were often made to, to they were made out to be, 
and you haven't really got those skills in the biosuccession model, taking a much more communication or relational approach to your clinical practice, you can become, I became quite disillusioned. I thought, well, manual therapy is pointless. It's non-specific in terms of, in terms of its effects and its location. And just, this is all just a waste of time. You know, I should have gone and done medicine or something else. It was kind of black and white thinking and, and I, I'm much more measured now. Um, so that was, that was the challenge for me was to, was to create a model of practice, which recognized some of the skills which I had developed as a manual therapist, but also was consistent with the evidence, sat comfortably with me ethically, and obviously was helpful for the patient. And it's probably only been the last five or six years that that you gain some confidence that you can begin to, to draw upon the literature, discard ideas, theories, and practices which you which appears to be quite clear clearly they're, they're clearly flawed or or clearly untrue and just embrace more contemporary concepts and not feel worried that you're contradicting some professional secret professional code or some professional identity that you really just take on the approaches and the evidence which you think best serves the patient rather than preserving some either self-interest or some professional interest you've got to keep the generation of osteopaths going by by holding these ideas you know by still using these ideas i'm quite happy to, to kind of relinquish them if there's a better idea that comes along so I think just having, and also just being confident with uncertainty. I mean, comfortable with uncertainty. I think that's that's one of the big challenges as a as a novice clinician is that you are thinking is often quite routine. We like kind of clear, black or white. We're not so good with uncertainty or grey areas. We want simple solutions to complex questions. And so I think just the natural course of being in clinical practice, and as well as kind of reading and consuming and talking to more experienced colleagues. That you're able to, you kind of, you're quite comfortable with the fact that actually you don't really know what the hell you're doing and no one else does, but you can just have a, a bloody good stab based on you know, a reasonable interpretation of the evidence and kind of sound clinical judgment. And also recognizing that you genuinely, you genuinely are concerned for the patient and you genuinely want to help them and you genuinely want to do your best to place them really at the forefront and give them space and time to communicate with you and for you to work together with them to find a solution. So I think it's about removing removing some of that pressure that you've got to find the right answer, you've got to fix them, you've got to do this for them. And as you transition to a more person-centered approach, you recognize that it's the two of you together who are trying to arrive at a solution together. And I think that takes some of the pressure off too. So the next question is, is if evidence-based practice is embraced by more and more therapists in the world, no matter whether they're physios, chiropractors, osteopaths, etc., will the blurring of the different professions occur? Um, so my answer to this is, I hope so. Already my position on professional identity and professional distinctions is that professional identity is one of social construction, that these are constructs which are creative through social interaction um, and partly tied to a collection of values which are held by those professional groups. And I've got no problem with groups of clinicians or professionals holding sets of values or differing sets of values and calling themselves different professions. And I can see that there's benefit in that in terms of professional fulfillment. There's some evidence suggests that a stronger professional identity you're more likely or is associated with rather an adherence to professional guidance and regulations. And I think it gives patients choice too, that they've got a, that there's pluralism in terms of the sorts of treatments and interventions that they can choose and the sorts of clinicians that they can decide to to seek care from. I think my, my major concern is that when professional identities really gets in the way of taking up effective 
and good methods and approaches to helping people in pain and who are suffering. So when one has a dogmatic professional identity, which really closes the door on new ideas or ideas from outside that profession, then really that professional identity isn't serving the patient optimally or best. And so there is that argument that says if we're all, when I say we, I'm kind of speaking for the family of musculoskeletal professions or the family tree of musculoskeletal professions, if we're all reading the same journals, to some extent following the same uh, clinical guidelines and on the face of it, many of our interventions are the same, whether it's psychological interventions, manual therapy interventions or exercise interventions. And if we're using evidence to really shape how we, whether or not we utilise those interventions and how we utilise those interventions, then I certainly foresee a time that those professional distinctions will just be broken down. So that's the end of this first AMA. I hope that you found it helpful. I enjoyed uh, trying to tackle some of the questions and I will keep these reasonably regular and they'll just sit in between some of the podcasts that we've got coming up over the summer to keep everyone occupied and engaged during the pandemic. And I've just got to take a moment to say, if you haven't listened to the Words Matter podcast, please do. There's some really good content. I know that I found it immensely helpful to be able to sit down and speak with all of the guests. They have so much rich and insightful and wise words to to share with us. So please listen, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, and I'll continue to try and release um, equally good quality episodes as I go along. So for now, that's it from me, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.